Hello, and welcome to the Spring Podcast, where socialist ideas take action. I am your host, Laura Conrad. The Spring Podcast is recorded from Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people, and is produced by the Spring Socialist Network. We are very lucky today to have Tara Alami with us. Tara is a Palestinian organizer and university student originally from Jerusalem and Yaffa. Her entire family was exiled from their homeland in 1948 and ended up in Amman, Jordan. She is currently based in Geojage, also known as Montreal. Tara is active with McGill students in solidarity for Palestinian human rights and the Palestinian youth movement. Tara, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. To begin, could you give us a brief background of what has been happening in the last 70 plus years between Israel and Palestine and what it means to say free Palestine? Yeah. Of course. Um, I think to begin with, it's really important to be careful with like our language when we're talking about the situation in occupied Palestine um, and what the Israeli state um, has been doing to Palestinians and Palestine and Palestinian land for more than 73 now. It's 73 years now. Um, it's really hard to give a brief background of the atrocities the state has committed against Palestinian people and our land. Um, But I'm going to try my best. So Zionist settlements on Palestinian land uh, were created before Palestine was even declared a British mandate in 1922. And the presence of the British colony and British colonists favored the growth of the of these Zionist settlements and they actively facilitated the spread of the Zionist project whose goal is to essentially have an exclusively Jewish ethnocracy. So this is where the Zionist quote, a land without a people for a people without a land comes into play because settlers were actively attempting to displace and replace indigenous Palestinians, even before 1948. Um, Before 1922 as well, in in 1917, there was the Balfour Declaration, which was released by the British government, and it stipulated that it supports um, a, quote, national home for the Jewish people. And then from 1936 to 1939, there was the Arab Revolt, which began with a general strike and then was really swiftly pacified by the British colony. Um, And by this point, the settlers constituted about a third of the population in Palestine, and they began calling for a partition of land which many people think is the first time that a partition of Palestinian land was planned. But that's not true because in 1919, the World Zionist Organization also created a partition plan for Lebanon, Syria, and what was Transjordan at the time. And almost three decades later, um, in 1947, 
the UN partition proposed giving the UN partition plan proposed giving 56% of our land to settlers which effectively gave them most of our fertile regions um, and essentially all of our economy um, and this was just a proposition um, and Palestinians rejected it but Israel was declared a state unilaterally by itself, even before the UN Security Council came to a conclusion at the time. So that's when the Nakba, which is Arabic for catastrophe, began more than 73 years ago, um, with more plans that had the goal of expanding the Zionist borders and expelling Palestinians from their homes, more mass massacres of Palestinians, some of whom are now buried in unknown and unlocated mass graves. Um, which eventually all of this culminated in the 1948 war and its ensuing effects um, that left at least 800,000 Palestinians expelled from their homes and exiled from their land, um, including for all four of my grandparents and their families with no right of return. Um, after that, settlers started moving into their homes and they basically just settled um, because the Israeli state created um, a law called the Absentee's Property Law, which allowed systematic seizure of our property, um, including what was left in banks by the refugees. Um, because refugees were, and they still are, refused the right to return the absentee's property law just allowed settlers to move into their home, um, seize their property, their farms, their businesses, and everything that they left in their banks. Um, and this is why I think um, Palestinians always talk about their keys to their homes, which my family still owns, because um, all of these Palestinian refugees took their keys with them. Um, because this was just a war and it was supposed to be over and they were supposed to come back to their homes. Um, but, you know, we, as we all know, they were refused the right to return. Um, after that, there was the land acquisition law that was created by the Israeli state. And this systematically transferred hundreds of thousands of acres of um, land, factories, workshops to Israeli settlers. And the remaining 20% of indigenous Palestinians at the time were forced to live under Israeli martial law, which remains to this day, uh, with institutionalized racial segregation, subjugation, and dehumanization. Um, and a couple of decades later, in 1967, the Israeli state uh, attacked Egypt after a series of events, and this started the Six-Day Battle um, that ended with the Israeli state seizing control of the West Bank, um, Gaza, and the Egyptian Sinai Desert, and the Syrian Golan Heights. And this is what we call the Nakse, which is Arabic for setback. Um, Jordanians were expelled out of the West Bank, and Egyptians were expelled out of, out of the Gaza Strip, and hundreds of thousands more Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from these areas and were made refugees and again refused the right to return um 
This began the military colonization of the occupied West Bank and Gaza, which we still see to this day. And I think after that, the next two most um, important events are, the three most important events are the two intifadas and the Oslo Accords. Um, The first intifada began in 1987, and it's when Palestinians participated in civil disobedience, and they refused to pay Israeli taxes. They burned Israeli products and promoted self-reliance on Palestinian Palestinian-produced products and businesses. Um, And the Israeli state obviously responded with violence. It assassinated Palestinian leaders and it it violently suppressed demonstrations. It burned down Palestinian farms, destroyed schools and other institutions, which only encouraged the Intifada. And um, between the first and the second Intifada, there was the Oslo, quote-unquote, peace Accords or the peace process, which was um, signed after collusion between the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the Israeli state, uh, which created what is known today as the Palestinian Authority. And that was initially supposed to only last five years, but the Palestinian Authority exists to this day. Um, There was also the lesser known Paris Protocol, which controlled the economic policies Palestinians were allowed to make, and it ultimately bound the Israeli economy to the Palestinian economy, which uh, is basically what the two-state solution is, with permanent IDF presence in the West Bank and Israeli control of borders, airspace, and individual Palestinian sovereignty, autonomy, and self-determination. After that, in the year 2000, there was the second intifada, which was triggered by Ariel Sharon visiting Al-Aqsa with armed troops to announce that the noble sanctuary will be under Israeli rule forever. Um, Palestinians resisted in similar ways as the first intifada, but they... um, They also resisted with guerrilla warfare and suicide bombings, and Israel reacted with even more violence. And if we move forward, if we fast forward to today, we're seeing the Israeli state continue its violence against indigenous Palestinians. It brutally assaults Gaza every few years, besides having it besieged and besides having the millions of people living there um, in an open-air prison that's under a blockade. It routinely bombs schools, hospitals, UN offices, media offices in Gaza. And if we fast forward to today, we're seeing the Israeli state continue its violence um, against Palestinians. Uh, It brutally assaults and bombs Gaza every few years, um, besides having it besieged and having the millions of people in Gaza living in an open-air prison. It bombs UN offices, media offices, and schools. And we're also seeing the Israeli state continue the ethnic cleansing and displacement of Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, in Silwan, in Beta, um, inside the 1948 occupied territories, which which are known as Israel proper, 
Um, there were public lynch mobs that were live streamed on TV just a couple of months ago. Um, Israel had the Operation Law and Order also a, few, a couple of months ago where it arrested hundreds and possibly thousands of Palestinian citizens of Israel for their activism, most of them being youth. Um, inside the occupied West Bank, we're currently seeing protests against the PA charging them with collusion with the Israeli state and corruption. And these protests erupted after the murder of activist Nizar Banat, um, who was outspokenly critical of the PA. So with all that historical and um, political context, I think that um, it's clear that when we say free, free Palestine, we're talking about Palestine from the river to the sea. We're not talking just about the occupied West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. We're talking uh, about the liberation of Palestine and Palestinians from the Zionist regime and its allies. Our um, liberation from dehumanization and subjugation. And we're talking about the right of return for the millions of Palestinian refugees in the diaspora, like me, who have either never been to their own land or have only been able to visit their own land because they have Western passports from other settler colonies like the US and Canada. And when we say free Palestine, we're also talking about complete and absolute restitution and reparations. Thank you very much for that background and um, for explaining that so well and giving such a thorough understanding of the history here because um, yeah, there has been a, seems like a sudden resurgence of protests around Canada and across the world about this and um, giving that background is actually really helpful. Um, what do you think this new wave of solidarity amongst young people means for the broader Palestinian struggle? And, and, and why maybe you can give some insight into why there has been this sudden resurgence of protests? I think we're in this really crucial moment in the Palestinian liberation movement or the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Um, I think that it's some kind of paradigm shift where we're seeing Palestinian youth on the ground and in exile experiencing uh, like collective radicalization. Um, and I think this is evident when we think about the faces of um, this new shift who are Muhammad and Mun al-Kurd the twins living in Sheikh Jarrah, who are both in their early 20s and have essentially encouraged youth um, across the world to, revol to revolt through social media and on the streets by sharing raw and unedited footage of the Israeli occupation forces occupying Sheikh Jarrah and assaulting its residents by sharing the infamous video of the white settler from Long Island, who is currently living in their home, saying that if he doesn't steal it, someone else would. Um, we also have organizations like Palestinian Youth Movement, um, Students for Justice in Palestine, 
Students in Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights. Um, all of these organizations are bringing together Palestinians and Arab youth across Turtle Island and focusing on community building in the diaspora and essential political education and also education about organizing and what it means to um, be an activist and organize for true systemic change. So I think that what's happening now is um, mass mobilization outside of Palestine like we've never really seen before. And in my opinion, we owe most of this resurgence to social media, which is connecting Palestinians on the ground to Palestinians in exile um, in ways that we've just never experienced before. We're receiving direct calls to action from Palestine um, extremely quickly, and we're able to respond to these calls to action immediately. And I think that has allowed us to really broaden the reach of our movement and our demands. And that has allowed people to uh, go to the streets and to demand justice. What do you think it will take to free Palestine? Um, this is a really tough question. I think um, I think what's necessary is the liberation of our minds from colonization. Um, we have been inundated with all the atrocities that the Israeli state has committed against us, um, whether we've been living in... Um, on Turtle Island or elsewhere um, in Swana. And I think that really affected the way that we think about Palestinian liberation to the point where um, it's sometimes hard to imagine what a liberated Palestine would look like. And it's hard to imagine um, or it's just intimidating to think of how big of a task this is. But I think that, especially with the mass collective radicalization that we're seeing now among youth, I think that the first step is to liberate our minds from colonization, to um, reach out to other Palestinians, to talk to each other, about our hopes and our dreams and um, to, to put in the work um, to join Palestinian solidarity groups on campus, to join um, organizations like Palestinian Youth Movement, to volunteer, to organize and to get on the streets when we call for protests. Um, a lot of what's going on in, Pal in occupied Palestine and a lot of what the Israeli state is doing is, um, is because countries or settler colonies like Canada and the US are, um, because they're endorsing these actions. And if we don't hold these other settler colonies accountable for their own atrocities against the indigenous people on this land 
and indigenous people on other lands, then I don't think any true, true change will happen, at least not within, within my lifetime. Um, so this is why I think that decolonization of our minds is important, not only when it comes to Palestine, but when it comes to any colonized people anywhere, anywhere on earth. <laughs> Can you, uh, maybe just for those that might not understand, can you explain what you mean by um, decolonization of our minds? Um, I sort of started this process myself a couple of years ago where I sat down and kind of looked at what I was consuming, the kind of information that I was consuming about Palestine, about the Israeli state, about um about Canada and the US and I had to um, be honest with myself about actively looking for sources that truly matter. Um, it's listening to the news on CNN is not how we're going to um, first of all, get the truth about what's happening in Palestine. Second of all, liberate Palestine. Um, but reading books by Palestinian revolution revolutionaries like Hassan Kanafani, um, reading Edward Said's writings about exile and Orientaliz Orientalism and liberation, um, re reading the works of Leila Khalid or other Palestinian women who were essential to um, to any kind of revolution on the ground or any kind of uprising on the ground is how we start to decolonize our mind. We cannot keep consuming sources that do not belong, that do not come from our own people. Um, we need to go back to our roots to talk to our grandparents about what they experienced because our grandparents were in Palestine. My grandparents, my grandparents grew up in Palestine. My grandfather was older than 25 when he was exiled. I'm 22 right now. So this is, we, we have to go back to our roots and to stay true to ourselves um, when it comes to Palestinian liberation. Um, preserving our indigeneity to that land, preserving our culture, preserving our tradition and our language, speaking in Arabic to each other, um, writing in Arabic, reading Arabic works, and keeping in touch with people back home, because we all have relatives back home, and not looking at Palestine as an abstract, um, as an abstract place. I know it's that it's really hard to make Palestine into a tangible place when so many of us are, aren't even allowed to set foot on that land. Um, but I think that um, it's easier to do that when you're in touch with people who are on the ground um, and you're uh, keeping up with activists who are on the ground and who are, re who are trying to reach as many people as possible in exile. Um, so yeah, I think that decolonization comes from going back to our roots. You mentioned that Canada um, has endorsed um, 
the Israeli apartheid. Could you speak a little bit more about that and maybe give some examples of that, what that looks like? Yeah, of course. Um, Canada as a settler colony itself is one of the Israeli state's best friends. Um, they're besties. <laughs> Justin Trudeau is um, openly and extremely Zionist and um, Canada unsurprisingly supports the two-state solution, which is not a solution and was never actually intended to be a solution. Um, but besides just saying that you support the two-state solution, Canada has also had a free trade agreement with the Saudi state since 1997. And the two-way merchandise trade between them um, in 2020 was valued at more than $1.6 billion. Um, and just a month ago, Trudeau endorsed the Israeli state's newest fascist prime minister, who was openly and explicitly saying that he's willing to kill more Arabs. And I'm sure that in a few days, when Eid al-Adha rolls around, Trudeau's going to make like a sweet little video wishing all of us a happy Eid or Eid Mubarak, um, as if he doesn't have our blood on his hands. Um, if And if we're going to talk specifically about Canada's arms sale to the Israeli state, we're talking about exports that are valued at almost $60 million worth of arms, including $16 million were, um, in, in bomb components since 2015, bombs that are used against Gaza just or were used against Gaza just a couple of months ago in May, um, where more than 70 children were murdered. Um, and in May, we saw um, Jagmeet Singh calling for an end to Canada's arms deal with the Israeli state. But, you know, all that effort, as usual, is seemingly being swept under the carpet. So I think all in all, Canada is horrifyingly complicit in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in our forced and violent displacement and replacement by Israeli settlers who sometimes come from Canada. Um, and our institutionalized subjugation. Canada not only stays silent with regards to Israeli war crimes, but Canada actively and materially endorses them. Can you maybe share a little bit of um, having such a thorough understanding of that and coming from Palestine, having family that is still living there, what what that means to you, what that feels like, uh, knowing Canada's role? Um, it feels like I don't belong here, and I honestly don't want to belong here. <laughs> um, this is not the place for me. Every single day I'm reminded that I should go back home and I wish I could go back home. I wish I could go back to my land, to Palestine. Um, it feels unsafe to be walking around a campus that is openly Zionist, that threatens its Palestinian students with interventions um, into, like, into student union proceedings when we go up and we talk about what we're experiencing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, 
on your university campus. You are also active in the boycott, sanctions, and divestment movement, sometimes just known as the BDS movement. Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, maybe why the university campus is a crucial space for organizing? Yeah, so BDS was launched in 2005, um, a year after the International Court of Justice ruled the construction of the Israeli apartheid wall um, illegal, and 57 years after the beginning of the Nakba, um, by the uh, Palestinian civil society. It's a rights-based, Palestinian-led and non-violent form of resistance um, against the Israeli occupation, and it's inspired by the South African anti-apartheid movement. It basically has three demands from the Israeli state. Um, First, it demands that the Israeli state ends its occupation of Palestinian land and the Syrian Golden Heights, that it dismantles the apartheid wall, And second, it demands that the Israeli state recognizes and grants the right of Palestinian citizens of Israel inside the 1948 occupied territories, um, full equality and equity in relation to their Israeli settler counterparts. And third, it demands that the Israeli state um, respects, protects, and promotes the inalienable right of Palestinians in exile to repatriation and restitution. Um, And it aims to reach these demands through a strategy of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, Boycotting is withdrawing all the financial support from international and Israeli corporations, institutions, um, sporting associations, academic institutions, and cultural institutions engaged in the violation of Palestinian human rights. And um, divestment requires basically calling on universities, religious institutions, banks, councils, labor unions, and pension funds to withdraw their investments um, in corporations complicit in the violation of Palestinian human rights. And sanctions um, is... um, Sanctions can be achieved by urging governments to place um, sanctions on the Israeli occupation state by ending free trade and military trade agreements with the Israeli state and expelling Israel from international forums like the United Nations and FIFA. And I think that um, university campuses are essential for organizing, specifically with regards to BDS and especially on Turtle Island. Um, For example, McGill University invests millions of dollars per year in companies complicit in upholding and funding the Israeli occupation. Uh, Companies like Remax and Oshkosh Corporation which operate in illegal Israeli settlements and facilitate the the military occupation of Palestinians and Palestinian land. Um, Students need to hold their campuses accountable for their investments, and they need to demand real real institutional and systemic changes through their student unions. Um, McGill itself used to support and financially endorse the South African apartheid, 
until its students resisted and eventually forced it to divest. And, you know, most often on campuses here, investing isn't seen as a political statement. But when you come out and you ask your university to divest, um, that's seen as a political statement that universities shouldn't make. But we need to hold our administrations accountable. Um, even though organizing on university campuses here is scary, especially because most of them are overt uh, Zionists, um, if not just covert, covert Zionists, um, that you know condone hostility towards Palestinians and pro-Palestine activists on campus um, by not condemning it. Um, we see doxing on websites like Canary Mission, where Palestinian students and their allies, especially if they support BDS, um, have all of their information available on the internet for anyone who feels like harassing them online or in person. Um, all of this is terrifying, but we have to keep resisting because um, without resistance, there's no systemic changes. And I encourage university students everywhere to join or to create their own Palestinian Solidarity Student Clubs, to submit motions to their student unions um, and petitions to their administration until they see tangible and material changes from their universities. Um, honestly, anything, anything but compliance in the face of blatant injustice on campus. So the BDS movement in that way is um, one measure that people here can take in order to free Palestine. Um, for anyone listening that wants to take action or learn more about um, the free Palestine movement, do you have any um, actions that they could take that you can suggest? Um, before I uh, just give those little calls to action, BDS is um, one of the ways where you can sort of, um, uh, it's one of these movements where you can localize it to the conditions in your own city or more broadly if you're working on like a national level in your own country. And um, BDS has targeted boycott campaigns, uh, like, for example, against HP, Puma, um, Ahava Cosmetics, and um, other international or Israeli corporations. Um, but there are also other BDS lists that have brands like L'Oreal or Maybelline. So these are things that individuals can do um, you know, personally, it wouldn't sit right with me <laughs> to buy lipstick, uh, knowing that this money is funding the genocide of my people. But um, these are things that people can do if they cannot, uh, maybe they do, they do not have the capacity to organize on a broader level. Broader le broader level. But um, this is not the only way or the only thing that people should do um, with the goal of liberating Palestine. Um, it's just a step, um, and it's just sort of um, 
paving the way for mass mobilization, which was what we truly need. I think that, you know, along with that, with mass mobilization, what I would say is um, I would urge people to follow Palestinian activists and organizers on social media and to amplify and platform their voices because they are calling for mass mobilization. Um, and to stay up to date on what's currently happening in Silwan and Beta, because um, there are forced expulsions, people are being forcefully displaced and their homes are being forcefully demolished by the Israeli state if they refuse to demolish them themselves. Um, and Palestinians are being made homeless by the Israeli state. Um, and also to keep up with the protests against the Palestinian Authority happening inside the West, the occupied West Bank. Um, and I think that the last thing would be to read um, the articles on Spring Magazine about Palestine, because they really offer um, great insight into what's currently happening on the ground. Another call to action would be um, donating uh, to mutual aid funds, if you can, or sharing these funds with your networks. That's great, Tara. Thank you for sharing those suggestions for people to get involved who may wish to get involved more directly. Um, could you share with us uh, where you get your um, or how you fill, refill your personal well of strength to keep fighting to free Palestine? Um, I, I really love this question because I don't know. Um, I kind of feel like it's my duty to do this, um, especially because now three of my grandparents have passed away without ever being able to go back to their homes. Um, I kind of remember the stories they told me about um, being exiled and living in exile. And um, I think about one story specifically where my grandmother was able to visit um, Palestine before 1967. And she um, was able to go and see her house um, and she knocked on the door and some settlers came out and she asked if she could go inside and they told her, okay, but don't bring any of your children. But my father was really young at the time. So she just walked in with him and, um, she, um, she walked in and saw her own furniture and her own plates and her own forks and tables and chairs and bed being used by settlers. Um, so I think about this story and I think about how my grandparents spoke about a liberated Palestine, knowing that they were going to pass away without, um, without seeing a liberated Palestine. So when they were speaking about liberating Palestine, they were talking about that for us. Um, this is the third generation in exile. I am a third generation refugee and it's kind of, um, at, at this point in my life, I feel like I, I cannot go on with my life without having 
this activism and this organizing for Palestine be a, a big, big part of it um, because of my grandparents. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, You're welcome. And thank you for your time here today. Thank you for giving us such valuable insight into this movement and just really appreciate, really appreciate you being here today. So for listeners that might want to read more from Tara, please uh, check out her article in Spring Magazine. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and for your questions. Thank you for listening to the Spring Podcast. Our researcher is Sarah Saheed, and our audio engineer is Brian the Vinayaham. To learn more about Spring, please visit our website at springmag.ca. We welcome your feedback. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes, you can send us an email at info at springmag.ca. At